Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Thank you are. Has anybody ever heard of that? A couple of you? Okay. Uh, there's a show, I think it was originally, like a lot of good shows, a British show that was adapted for American TV. I think NBC aired it for a couple seasons, and then TLC picked it up for like six or seven seasons. But basically, if you haven't seen it or heard of it, the premise of the show was that every episode they would take a different celebrity, and throughout that whole episode, they would, they would using experts, they would go back and look at this person's personal ancestral history to figure out kind of who they are, looking back at their great-great-great-grandparents and finding out cool stories about who those people were and, and revealing that to this celebrity. And it really is kind of basically answering, trying to answer that question of who do you think you are was the prem, as, as the title of the show. And we live in a culture, I think, where we are very fascinated by that question where we, you can read hundreds of books trying to answer that question, help you answer that question. You can spend lots of time and money talking to advisors and counselors trying to help you figure out that question. I remember back, well, we're coming up kind of on graduation season here in, in, uh, in about a month or so, and I remember back 20 years ago when I graduated from high school, like so many of my parents' friends would say to me, now you're going to go off to college and you're going to figure out who you are. Right? We say those kinds of things, to, especially to grads. And, um, and so I think that's a really important question, this idea of personal identity, of thinking about who do you think you are, and that's important. But I also think it's important that we think of it more from a communal standpoint or a collective standpoint of thinking about who do we think we are? Who do we think we are, I should say? Specifically, when it comes to our faith. And from a faith point of view, as Christians, as the church, who do we think that we are? Now, there's a man named Paul in the Bible. You may be familiar with him, but Paul thought he knew who he was. He thought who he knew who he was. During the early years after Jesus' death and resurrection that we celebrated last weekend, during the early years of the early Christian church, Paul was persecuting early Christians and putting them in prison and approving of their deaths until he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus himself. It's, in, it's found in, the, in Acts chapter 9 in the Bible. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. But it's this powerful encounter where literally he gets knocked on his butt by Jesus, and he's temporarily blind. And it's in that experience that Paul does a, a total 180 in redefining who he is. In fact, he, he goes from persecuting Christians to being one of the most outspoken Christians the world has ever known. And he spends pretty much the rest of his life going around as a missionary from city to city to city of the known world at the time, telling people about Jesus, gathering those believers together, and then starting these churches. And later on in Paul's life, ironically enough, he's put in prison himself because of his faith. And during that time, he wrote lots of letters to these churches that he had planted. And many of those letters then became included into our Bible. And one of those letters in particular is the letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to be spending the next number of weeks, like, like Bill mentioned, I'm starting a new series today, where we are going to be looking at the, letters of, the letter of Ephesians, really taking a deep dive into this letter and thinking about this question of who do we think we are? 
and talking about how that, that, that question helps us figure out our collective identity as Christians, as the church, but also how then it impacts how we live our everyday life. What does that mean as we go and leave these walls? Now, Ephesians, it's a medium-sized letter. There are longer letters in the Bible and shorter letters in the Bible. It's six chapters, 155 verses. It takes about 20 minutes to read from start to finish. But it is packed to the rim full of these deep, amazing biblical truths uh, that both not only concepts, but also applications for us as everyday Christians. It naturally divides into two very equal halves of the six chapters. Chapters one through three, the first half of it, really help us figure out our position in Christ, our position, our identity, our collective identity in Christ. Well, the, the second three chapters focus more on the practices, the practices of what it means to be a Christian. And like most ancient letters, Paul doesn't say who he is at the end of the letter. He actually says who he is at the beginning of the letter. We always put, you know, when you're writing a letter or an email, you always put, you know, your name at the end of the letter, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, you want to know who's writing to you at the beginning. Paul does that. He starts off in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here Paul tells himself, or identifies himself as the writer. And most historians believe that Paul probably wrote this letter probably in the early 60s, not the 1960s, just the 60s, uh, while he was probably, in, well, during the time he was imprisoned for two years in Rome. But prior to that, in the early to mid-50s, Paul actually lived in Ephesus. He lived in Ephesus for longer, really, than pretty much any other place that he ever really lived. He stayed there for a really long time, teaching in the public areas and building up this, the early church, or the church there in this very pagan city. If you want to throw that map up here, this is where Ephesus is, was located, kind of in western modern-day Turkey. You can see it right underneath the big T there. But uh, you can also see some other major cities and where it's related to that, like Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. But Ephesus uh, was um, probably the fourth or fifth largest city at the time in the world. It was a major port city, really the gateway into Asia. Uh, it had a large population. We know, we know that not just based on the size of the city, but also because it had an amphitheater that held 25,000 people which if you think about having a stadium of holding 25,000 people back then, that's a really big like, group of people. And it, they hosted similar events to like the Olympics. Um, it was also a melting pot of many religions and cult practices. We know that based on artifacts and things that there were statues where people worshiped the Roman emperors and there was a temple to the Roman goddess Diana and her Greek counterpart Artemis that was, this temple was so big it was one of the ancient Seven Wonders of the World was found there. And so there were lots of opportunities for Paul in the early church, lots of people, but there were also lots of challenges in Ephesus for the early church. Now, interestingly, the phrase that we read in verse 1 that said, uh, in Ephesus, is actually not found in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have in the Bible. Uh, and it, this letter is also very different uh, from some of Paul's other letters, where he doesn't specifically talk about specific individuals living in Ephesus in the letter. 
and he doesn't address specific issues necessarily in Ephesus in the letter. And so some scholars have, have really questioned, hey, was this really intended to be just for Ephesus? And the, the con- general consensus is that it was meant for Ephesus, but was meant to be circulated around the area, that because of Paul's influence in the church and how big it had grown, that there would have been other churches around Ephesus that had probably popped up. And so the in- intention was that it would have been passed around to those different churches. But that's actually really helpful for us. It's really helpful that it's more general because it means that pretty much everything in the letter is really applicable to our lives. There's nothing in that letter that we can dismiss and say, well, that just was meant for that specific person or that specific time. That it's probably one of the most applicable letter 2,000 years later to us than any of the other letters in the Bible. Now, after Paul introduces himself in the very first verse, he goes on into this long, beautiful uh, sentence, actually. One of the most beautiful sentences, I think, of the Bible, identifying who we are as Christians. To us, it's actually 12 verses long. It's verses 3 through 14. It's, it's, um, it's quite a long statement, but it was in the original language. It was actually one giant 202-word run-on sentence. I'm sure Paul's elementary teachers just loved him, right? Uh, but, but I'm going to actually read it to you. And I thought about trying to read it in one giant breath, but I probably would pass out. So uh, I'm going to read it slower and kind of more with the no- breaks we're used to. But starting off in verse 3 through 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and under earth under Christ. And in him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Whew. That is one long, packed statement. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty confident my, my second grade teacher would have just, Paul would have driven her crazy, right? But um, there is so much in here to unpack. There's no way we can unpack everything. But I want to point out how Paul very intentionally talks about really our identity and who we are in this passage as Christians, as the church. The very first thing he wants to tell the Ephesians here, he wants them to understand their identity in light 
of the Trinitarian God. In light of this idea of the Trinity is what we call it. Paul talks about here and here, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And he strategically wraps up our identity in these three persons of God. Now the Trinity, if you're not familiar with that, the Trinity is this mysterious and yet kind of confusing concept But it's one of the most foundational truths about what we believe as Christians. It's one of the things that makes Christianity different from all other religions. This idea that we believe in one God, and yet that one God exists in three different persons. Distinct and unique, important, equally important persons. People have tried over the years, and and to be honest, struggled, to try to give some sort of illustration to help us kind of wrap our brains around this concept. Um, And some of them are helpful, and some of them are not so helpful. Uh, Some of them are kind of helpful in just getting the idea. Like, I've heard people say things like, well, it's kind of like water, how water can exist in three states, you know, solid, liquid, and gas. Or uh, St. Patrick, legend has it, talked about using a shamrock as being like the Trinity. The three leaves on a shamrock as being like the three different persons of the Trinity, or people have, have said it about themselves. Like, so for me specifically, I'm a father. I also happen to be a son. And I, I'm part of my role kind of as a pastor is like a counselor, which is one of the names counselor that we give to the Holy Spirit. But all of those examples fall short, especially the one about me, falls way short of really articulating this idea of the Trinity, of God in three persons. Because nothing is like God. There's nothing like God. So, so of course, there's going to be nothing that gives us a perfect example of, or illustration to explain that concept perfectly. But, but in looking at this gigantic run-on sentence, Paul starts off addressing this letter, wanting to lay the foundation, lay the foundation that as Christians, that our position, our identity, is found, of, of really answering that question, who do we think we are, is found in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, starting with God the Father, in verses 3 through 6, we see that who we are is that we are chosen and adopted. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And that's the first point. We're adopted by the Father. It says this in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us for adoption into sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ, according to his pleasure and will. Now, part of our identity of who we are as Christians is that we are chosen and adopted by the Father that he picks us first. We often think about how we choose him, but he picks us first. Uh, It's because of his love, it says in verse four, that he has picked us and wanted to adopt us since the beginning of time, which is radical to me. Hard for me to wrap my brain around, but the idea that this family that, that God is in, this family with the son and family with the Holy Spirit, that the Father, that that wasn't enough, that he also wanted us to be a part of his family, and so he adopts us into that. But 
that begs the question, well, does the, did adoption mean the same thing back then to Paul as it does now? Because that could make a difference, right, But in what he's talking about. But in Paul's day and age, in a Roman culture, in a Roman world, to be adopted into a Roman family was the greatest positional honor you could receive that could be given to you. It meant that you had all, all of the privileges and inheritances and wonderful things about being a Roman citizen. You know, if you were adopted as, into a Roman family, it meant that you had the right to vote. It meant that you had the right to own property. That Roman women could own property and could run and operate businesses, which was radical back then. It meant that if you were accused of something, you were given the right to a trial, something that I think we take for granted as living this day and age, that we assume that everybody has that, but back then that was not the case. And if you were a Roman citizen, even if you were convicted of the highest of crimes, you could not be crucified like we celebrated Jesus being crucified last weekend. You know, even as a Roman citizen, that could not happen to you. So to be adopted into a Roman family, into Roman culture, meant you were given all the rights and privileges of an elite Roman. Now, historically, back then, probably the most famous adoption back then that the early church would have been familiar with was the adoption when Julius Caesar, excuse me, adopted Octavian to be his son and heir. Now, Octavian became later known as Caesar Augustus and was the first Roman emperor, expanding the empire to what it had become back in that time period. So can you imagine being adopted by the most powerful father in the known world, right, and given basically access to everything in the known world and the inheritance, the greatest inheritance. And what Paul is trying to get the early Christians to understand, what he's trying to get us to understand, is that what we have by being adopted by God is so much more greater than that. That what Caesar Augustus had didn't even, doesn't even come close to comparing what we are given in the privileges and inheritance that we are given by being adopted by God the Father. J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being called God's child and having God as his father. Father is the Christian name for God. And so who do we think we are? Part of that answer to that question is that we are adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. But how is that possible? How does that happen? How can God adopt us? Well, Paul tells us in the next few verses that we are adopted when we believe and put our faith in the redeeming and forgiving act of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son. By believing what we celebrated last weekend, by putting our faith in that, and by putting our faith in Christ, we read that phrase, in Christ, over and over again, not only in this section, but all throughout Ephesians. He uses that over and over again. We find out that that is how we are saved and adopted by God the Father. It's by that. Part of who we are is we are redeemed by the Son, we are redeemed by the Son. So that's the second point. It says in verse 7, in him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. So we, we came to be adopted by God the Father because we were first redeemed by the Son, 
by Jesus. And the word redeem, it means to exchange, to pay for, to save, to, to set free from slavery or imprisonment. It means that to pay the highest cost, in this case by Jesus, using his you know, dying in his own blood on the cross. Now, there's this story of a young boy. A young boy who he lived and grew up on this big, big lake. And, and the boy loved the water. He just was fascinated by the water. He was fascinated by sailing and boats. And so he talked his dad, his father, into helping him build this beautiful, intricate model sailboat. And so they spent weeks and weeks building this amazing boat. And, and the boy would play with it like every day. He, he would go out to the lake and on the edge of the water, he would play with it every day. It was his prized possession in the whole world. And one day the wind picked up and it took it too far out into the water that the boy couldn't get it. And it carried it beyond what he could see and it was lost. And the boy was just distraught. I mean, again, he lost his prized possession. Every day he would go back to the beach. Every day he would search on the horizon to see if it was out in the water or look in the sand to see if it was there. After doing that for weeks and weeks and weeks, he became more and more saddened. But one day he went, was walking through town, and he looked, and in a store window, there was his boat right there with a for sale sign on it. And he ran into the store, and he went up to the other, and he said, that's my boat. I made that boat. Can I have my boat back? And the owner said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't just give you the boat. I, I paid a lot of money for that boat. I bought it off a local fisherman who found it. And the boy left sad, but he left determined. He left absolutely determined that he was going to do whatever it took to get his boat back. And so he went and he worked every odd job he could get. He, he did every chore he could earn any kind of money for. And when he had enough money, he went back and he, got, he went and he paid for that boat. And he held it up in the air and he said, twice you are mine. First, because I made you, and second, because I paid for you. And that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. And you're thinking about it, Jesus made us. He was there when we were formed in our mother's wombs. Like, he was a part of our creation, the Bible tells us. Not only that, he paid for us. He paid for us by his death on the cross. He has redeemed us uh, like no one else ever could. And so that is the beautiful mystery, and that was the beautiful plan all along that Paul is talking about in this passage. So who do we think we are? Who do we think? Paul says we are adopted sons and daughters of the Father because we've been redeemed by the Son, because we've been redeemed by Him. But that begs one more question, and that question is, but how do we know that's true? What's our proof? What's our evidence? How do we know that's not just like this really nice sounding sentimental thing? Like just something that's just wishful thinking that are we going to go our whole lives just crossing our fingers, hoping that's true, hoping that's true? No, we don't have to do that because Paul tells us in this passage that the proof that the evidence is found in the third person of the Trinity. It's found in the Holy Spirit. If Paul tells us, that it's, we know for that it's true because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the Roman world, in Ephesus at that time, to be sealed. To be sealed was a way that somebody showed proof of ownership of something. It was like a stamp. It was like a branding, a tag that says, 
this is mine. This thing is mine. In verse 13 and 14, we read this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you first believed, he says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you first believed, when you first believed the good news that Jesus had died to pay the price for your sins, for your waywardness, for your you know, walking off and doing your own thing, that when you first believed, it, it means that immediately at that point that you were sealed, that you were branded, not like a physical branding, like, like a cow, right? But like a spiritual branding, a spiritual branding of receiving the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you, whether you felt anything or not. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was, was deposited in you. The Holy Spirit's probably the most misunderstood person of the Trinity, but it's the person who the Bible describes as our advocate, as our helper, as our teacher, our counselor, as our comforter, as our wind, as our breath. He is the breath of God in us. He is the life in us. And it's probably why it's so difficult to understand the Holy Spirit because it's not someone we can see. He's not someone he can see, but, but it can be hard for us to believe in him uh, and to know for sure if it's true. But we know it's true because we experience the effects of him living inside of us. You know, just like you cannot see the wind, right? You can't see the wind but we can see the effects of the wind, right? We don't actually see the wind. We see the wind causing things to move, right? The branches to move or things to trash to blow or different things like that. But we, we can't actually see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. As Christians, we can experience a deposit of the power of the Holy Spirit, a deposit of the wisdom and knowledge of the Holy Spirit, a deposit of the healing and the miraculous of the Holy Spirit, uh, a deposit of the fruit of the Spirit. What it talks about in Galatians, uh, another letter by Paul, where he talks about we can experience the peace, the joy, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the self-control as we grow in relationship with God. And when, when it says deposit here of our inheritance, it means that we get to a taste, a taste of the good future eternum feast. Right? It means, it means that that we get to experience even just a little bit of it now. And that deposit is our guarantee. It's our proof that we have been redeemed by the Son and adopted by the Father, that it really is true, and it really is real. It's our evidence and the seal of our faith. Now, last year, uh, my son Caleb decided to get baptized. And essentially, he was basically wanting to publicly say, hey, this is what I believe. I believe that I have been redeemed by the Son and that I have been adopted by the Father. And so it was, as a, you know, it was quite an honor and such a privilege to be able to baptize him along with Michael. If you want to throw those pictures up of him. It was a little different because we were in COVID, you know, so we had masks on. But uh, just what a, what a wonderful moment for me as his dad. But afterwards, we talked about it. And I said, hey, tell me, what was that like? You know, what did that feel like? Just process that with me, you know? And he said, well, I remember I was shaking, like, a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. 
And I said, well, were you just nervous? Like, I mean, it's pretty, that's, that is a little nervous, right? You're going to come up on stage in front of people. And, and he said, no, I wasn't nervous. He said, it was like, it was like electricity was going through me, but it wasn't painful. It actually felt good. It was like, like he said, he's used the phrase, it was like a jolt of joy going through me. He said, do you think that was like God? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I do think that's a possible way that we can experience God. And, I, and so in that for him, like I, we've talked about it. I said, you need to write that down. You need to remember that experience. That is one of those deposits in your life. That when you go through a hard season in life, difficult season where you maybe where you feel like God is distant or you don't feel like you're hearing his voice very much or you're having some doubts you can go back to that experience go back to that memory and remember no no that was my proof those kinds of experience are our proof that we really have been sealed by God that we are a part of his adopted family now when I was in my 20s and I I got baptized. I didn't experience electricity like that or any feeling like that. But I do believe that every time people are baptized, that they experience the Holy Spirit in some tangible way, uh, in some way of feeling loved by him or cared for by him, or God just begins to move in their life in a, in a, in a new way. And so I, that just, you know, just to plug, I know we talked about it, but if you're a Christian, if you believe all this stuff and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. Like, come back to the Welcome Center after the service and just find out some information about it and really pray and consider about getting baptized next weekend. We would love to do that if, uh, if you believe all this about Jesus. Um, and second, I would say, if, if you have friends or family even remotely interested in Christianity, invite them to next weekend's service. Invite them to come and watch people get baptized. Because I promise you this, not only are they going to hear the good news about Jesus, they're going to see the good news about Jesus. And that is a powerful, powerful way to, to witness to people and to invite them into relationship with him. But, you know, one of my things that I pray, not just for my children, but for you all, is that you would experience the Holy Spirit in some way, in some form. Because it is those kinds of things that help ground us in our faith and give us that ceiling or that proof. Now, if the worship team wants to kind of start to make their way back on up here, just to wrap up, who do we think that we are? Who do we think we are? Collectively, as Christians, as the church, what Paul starts off in this letter is we're going to dive deeper and go lots of different ways of who do we, who do we think we are and explore that from lots of different angles over the next couple of weeks. But what does he primarily start us off by pointing out? He says, who we are is that we are adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We are redeemed by the Son, Jesus, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is our great deposit of our great inheritance. But the truth is, is that none of this is forced on us. None of this is forced on us. Michael talked about this last weekend on Easter. He said, that, yes, God chose us first, but we do have to choose him back. He doesn't force us to be adopted. You know, in an adoption, if the child is old enough to be able to articulate 
uh, and, and speak and kind of know what's going on after the very extensive, and let's be honest, expensive process of adopting. Uh, oftentimes at the end, the judge will ask the child, do you want to be adopted by this family? Do you choose these people to be your mom and dad? Do you choose these other kids to be your brothers and sisters? Is this what you want to happen? You know, and, and this is the same for us too, that God gives us this choice. Do we want to be adopted by him and redeemed by him and sealed by him? So as we go back into worship, why don't we go ahead and stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.